Hey, it's Erin. Thank you so, so much for listening. Seriously, we had no idea that we would get thousands of downloads. You guys are so amazing. And I would love, love some help to kind of keep the momentum going. So if you could just leave us a review, that's really helpful for getting us ranked and helping other people find us. And share your favorite episode on Instagram by using the hashtag too many clothes. We are recording this podcast in a crazy time. We're actually recording during the coronavirus pandemic. And while we're all kind of forced to be in our house for the next four to eight weeks, Cladwell's really, I, I want us to do our part in helping you kind of ease the tension that we're all feeling. And so that looks like, you know, taking advantage of this rather forced slowdown, but taking advantage of it so that we can kind of be present and um, focus on what really matters. And also to rethink the relationship with our clothes. What better time when we're cooped up in our house than to look at our closet, to slow down, stop shopping, and do a closet clean out. And it also gives us the ability and the right to get creative when we're all kind of (laughs) sitting around in our leggings and our sweatpants and we have nowhere to go. um, Take this time to really get up in the morning, get dressed, and get dressed for yourself rather than for others. Okay, so we learned a ton making this podcast. And one of the things we learned is that scheduling is everything. One of the people we were desperately hoping to get but didn't was Andrew Morgan. Way back in 2015, Andrew and his team made a documentary called The True Cost, which I am not exaggerating, totally changed my life. This is the film that first got me asking, wait, where did my clothes come from? The documentary was a huge hit. And so, of course, he's busy and schedules just didn't line up, and I was super sad about it. But a couple weeks ago, I got an email from Andrew letting me know that he was available for one week. So we thought, okay, the podcast is done, but we just can't miss this opportunity. So I hope you enjoy this bonus episode with Andrew Morgan. We talk about his documentary and how he made it. We talk about manufacturing and fashion, and we talk about what people like us can do to make better choices. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, post about the show on Instagram, use the hashtag. I love you guys. And please enjoy this conversation with Andrew Morgan, director of The True Cost. Andrew Morgan is the creator and director of The True Cost, a film that sparked an international debate around the question, who makes my clothes? His work is currently on Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime. The New York Times described his unique style as gentle, humane investigations. And Vogue magazine wrote that it is evidence that each of us can act as a catalyst for change within our own lives and work together towards a greater good. He lives in L.A. with his wife, Emily, and their four children. Andrew, thank you so, so much for being here. Oh, it's so great to be here. I've been excited about it. So to just jump right into this, tell me about The True Cost. What is it? What's it all about? Why did you decide to make it? Yeah, so the film is really an exploration of the human and environmental cost Uh, resulting from the fashion industry as it operates now all over the world. And um, I had no background in fashion whatsoever. Um, I was getting coffee one day 
uh, not too far from my home here in Los Angeles, and I saw, uh, I looked down at the cover of the New York Times, and there was a photograph that I'll never forget. It was this um, picture of these two young boys who were very similar in age to my own boys at home at the time, and um, they were standing in front of this huge wall of missing person signs. And I picked up the paper and read about this uh, horrendous uh, clothing factory collapse that had taken the lives of... Um, at that point, it was already hundreds being reported, um, mostly women, some children. And I, as I was standing there in the coffee shop that morning, I, you know, I was just reading the, the front page of the article, and it was just talking about how at the time of the collapse, this factory was making clothes for major Western brands, and it went on to mention some brands that I have definitely bought clothes from. And it just kind of like, I had this stunning moment of realizing, in a split second, honestly, that I had never, ever in my life stopped to think about where my clothes actually came from. And yeah. I, I took that paper back to our office. I shared it with our producer. And I just said, I'm really fascinated by what this means and like all the things I don't know. Like this raises like a million questions in my mind right away. And we started doing some research that week and we started reaching out to people in different parts of the industry around the world. Um, just really picking up the phone and calling some of these people and saying, help, help me understand like from a human rights perspective, from a business, from a legal, from an environmental, like what, what's taking place in this world behind our clothes? And by the end of that week, I was absolutely convinced that uh, it was a film that I wanted to make. And wow. we set out to do it. Uh, that's It's interesting that you say that because I feel like watching your film was the first time I asked myself that question. Which is oh, like, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, so what was it like making this film for you personally and how much – you know, kind of give us the lay of the land. Like, how much time did it take to make it from start to finish? Do you have this huge production budget, or what was going down? Um, we did. <laughs> we did not have a huge production budget. Um, it was. It was an incredible journey. I mean, it changed my life completely. Um, it, it changed my life in a, a lot of different ways. Um, I. Uh, okay, basics. I mean, it took us a few years to make. We traveled to more than a dozen countries, many of them multiple times. Um, we started out by uh, doing a Kickstarter video, and people generously contributed to that. And then we had enough to go film, like in the first couple countries. And then we would come back to LA and cut things together and raise just enough money to go do the next trip. And it was like very touch and go. I mean, to be really honest with you, people. When I pitched the film, I went around town, you know, pitching my heart out, trying to raise money. And initially people just all kind of said, this isn't, no one's going to watch this. Like, this just sounds horrifically boring and upsetting. And uh, no one, like, no one really got, like, what it was, what it was going to be. And, and there hadn't really been anything quite like it. There had definitely been work that was great that we we learned from in, in our research, but there hadn't been anything quite like this. So... Um, it was challenging. It was uh, a small group of us. It was um, uh, some some people that I've worked with for a very long time that I actually grew up with, um, who are very very close friends of mine. And we would go to these different countries. We would work with local fixers. Often, sometimes they were current or former journalists who kind of had like inside ways of getting us um, into some of these places and helping us navigate yeah. uh, some of the safety issues. And it, we just kind of took it step by step. And I, I think like, you know, the, the experience that, that I hope people have watching the film is really the experience I had making the film, which is you sort of um, 
you, you start like on this one subject or this one idea. Like I really went into it concerned about the people working in these factories because yeah. I had found out about this issue through this factory collapse. I wanted to understand better why do these workers not have more representation and rights mm-hmm. in these factories. And then it's like it, it, it kind of begins to unravel. And you're like, oh, but like that's because of this broader like globalization. Like, this this exporting of this work that we've done this blind eye and that's because it's economic and it, it just kind of like it, it sort of grew in the sense that the more places we went the higher up we went in some of our search um it kind of built this mosaic that was incredibly I mean, like on one level, you know, we, we tried to make a film that's kind of like you can sit down in one sitting, you can get a, a sense or an overview of some of the, the challenges at play here. Yeah. But on a very personal level, it changed my life because it was like looking behind a curtain to the other half of the world. It was like I had grown up uh, going to the shopping mall, you know, taking all these new things into my life, discarding with all the old things in my life, never really thinking about either end of it too much. And suddenly I kind of had this irreversible set of experiences where it was like, you can't unsee it. Like one, yeah. once you sit, you know, toe to toe, eye to eye with human beings in different parts of this industry, you start to realize not just how big our world, but how small our world really is and how, you know, these aren't existential questions. These aren't uh, superfluous uh, searches. These are actually like real everyday life and death issues for millions of people. And I still, if I'm being honest, I still can't shake that experience like I still in my work now there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about um some of those people that I spend time with and it kind of started everything else that I've been doing since yeah and I'm curious because once you realize this was you know the story you wanted to tell first that sounds thrilling being able to pitch people and then getting rejected immediately (laughs) but (laughs) what did that entail when it came to getting access, like you touched on it for a second, but getting access to the factories and to the people working there, because I mean, especially at that time when people weren't really talking about this in the U.S. So what was that like to kind of uh, try try to get access? Well, it was really challenging uh, and it was really scary at sometimes. Um, yeah. It was also really important to me. Well, I'll answer that in two ways. First mm-hmm. is on a very practical level, uh, we really worked with incredible people on the ground. And, and to be honest, it's challenging when you go into someone else's country and you say, you know, hi, my name's Andrew and I, I don't live here and I came here because mm-hmm. I want to document something really, you know, uh, unsettling that's, yeah. that's happening. I want to go look for the ugliest stuff that's taking place in your country. That can be really, really offensive. So I spent a lot of time and energy with my producer uh, on the front end of these trips. We would have uh, several days, actually, where we would spend our time meeting with these fixers and these journalists and these local activists and we would basically just be saying look here's why we're here and here's what this movie is about and if you help us here's what we're trying to put together and i promise it's going to be something that honors the lives not only that have been lost but that are still Mm -hmm. you know involved in these industries and that was just incredibly powerful because once they caught a glimpse of what it was we were trying to do and that it wasn't you know, a 30-second news story mm-hmm. and that it wasn't something to sensationalize uh, some of the loss, especially in places like Bangladesh at the time, then it became uh, really, really more pragmatic about like, okay, how can we create diversions? How can we uh, create different pretenses? How can we get you inside these factories and how can we get you back out safely? And you know, it worked differently every time. Um, 
sometimes it was very straightforward. Other times it was very, 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 very complicated. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, to this day really grateful because it was those people that helped us do that. And the other thing I was just going to say is it was also really important to me early on to not peg the factory owners as the bad guys. Mm -hmm. um, and in the film, we actually feature a couple factory owners. And part of what I'm trying to articulate in the film is like, even these people who are, who are running these facilities, like they are very much cogs in a larger machine. And they are very symptomatic of pressure that's being put on them from the brands. Um, and that was, I don't know, that was just kind of an important piece of making it again, not just like stopping at the, sh the, 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 the first uh, sign of a crime, but to kind yeah. of say there's something much more implicating here on a larger scale. Yeah. And so did you have any close calls talking to these people? We did, yeah. Especially, um, there's a there's a main character in the film in Bangladesh, a garment worker named Shima, and we actually met her. Um, we met her through a union that she's a part of, and I first interviewed her. Um, we spent a lot of time talking to a lot of different garment workers. Um, we spent days just just doing interviews, just off camera, just talking, meeting, trying to figure out. We we knew we kind of needed someone to stand in and represent you know, um, yeah. the more than 40 million faces. And, and I knew that that had to be a really special person who could really, you know, tell the story in a powerful way. Um, and I remember when we met her, so we met her at this union office after work one night and I heard her story. Um, and just instantly, I remember before the translator had even finished translating, I just knew it was her. Like you could just, yeah. there was something so powerful and so, so special about her. Um, but then we had the challenge, so we could do her interviews because we knew her, the union representative has connected, so we could go to her home, we could meet Nadia, her daughter, and all that filming could take place. But then the big thing was like, I really needed her in the factory. Like I really needed to see, I wanted the audience to be able to see her sitting at her station. Yeah. Um, and that was much more challenging. So we ended up going into her factory and we, we did a meeting with the, the, the factory owner and then he knew we were making a film so then he wanted us to film these other people and what we did was we kind of split up our team so like we went and filmed the people that he wanted us to film and then we had this yeah. one guy kind of split off and go get shima but like shima the whole time was acting like she didn't know us she was not acknowledging us so it was very like to this day i remember like a couple of those different times getting back in the van like getting out of the security gates oh and being gosh. like oh my gosh i can't believe we're we feel like we robbed a bank there or something. right <laughs> uh so we've had um, author Elizabeth Klein on and even some historians who've talked about how the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire and um, well, they talked about the tri Triangle Shirtwaist Fire and how it changed so much for really how our clothes were made in the U.S. What did you see like when you were in the factory? What did you see when they were making our clothes? And then second, what do you think Americans today are still probably like mostly unaware of? That's a great question. I mean, I think, what are, what are we most unaware of? I mean, I think at the end of the day, starting with the basic principle that uh, human beings make the things that we wear. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that was just really shocking, and, uh, you know, this sounds so simple, but when you go through, you know, factory after factory after factory and country after country after country, um, the sheer volume of human capital that is being used is staggering. And I think if I'm if I'm being honest, I would have thought it was way more automatized than it is. Yeah. I would have thought that at this point, you know, it's got to just be like this mass produced. Clothing is really unique because there's an incredible amount of hand uh, human powered skill being used. And these workers represent some of the lowest work paid workers on planet Earth. Um, they are some of the least 
represented uh, in terms of basic union rights and therefore human rights. And there's just incredible leverage um, coming from the brands down to the factories, down to the people where you're operating in countries, not accidentally, where there is a uh, huge need for employment. And the, the risk of, or the fear of being replaced is constant. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, these workers work in environments, not only that are physically unsafe as we continue to see documented, um, I mean, we just witnessed atrocious things across the board uh, on every level, overcrowding, unbelievable heat, um, obviously staggering hours, especially as it gets yeah. close to some of these big deadlines. Uh, children on the floor, no health, like no child care programs in a lot of these factories, like un unbelievable egregious things, but also not just case by case egregious things, like a, a, again, like a, a broader sense of people working with very, very few levers of any kind of personal power. And that, that is what we saw in country after country after country. And that, you know, is what continues to lead to some of these systematic abuses that we see. I'm curious from your perspective, how are companies or how do you think companies are avoiding that? Because you hear the companies are like, oh, we went and checked out the factory and it's it totally meets all our regulations and that type of thing. So are they are they just not looking or are they doing the whole subcontractor thing or do you have any perspective on that? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, I think what you mentioned is very astute. I think there is a ton of subcontracting happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I spent time in factories and uh, uh, I remember one factory in Kampur in India that was, um, you know, not a registered factory for Walmart, but they, I watched them making Walmart products mm -hmm. and uh when we talked to the people and kind of you know looked into like what was it was like walmart had contracted with one factory and given them way more than they had capacity to produce and and i would say not unintelligently and then that factory in turn goes and offloads some of the work to these other factories that are not monitored or controlled at all and at that specifically, I remember that factory, there was like, there were babies on the floor. I mean, it was just oh, atrocious. Yeah. Um, so I think that takes place. There's also even below the subcontracting factories, there's an enormous amount of homework. Hmm. Um, I'm working with a group now who's really focused on how some of the least represented people at all in the gold fashion industry are these, are these home workers, which um, can, can sound and can be very empowering. Um, uh, people who are able to do some of this work out of their home and then turn the products into factories. But, but again, some of that stuff is like totally unmonitored, yeah. totally unregulated. Um, the fact the, the, the bigger question that you're asking is, you know, how in 2020 do companies that report profits in the billions have zero traceability and accountability? And the truth is that they continue to evade that for a couple of really clever reasons. One, we still run our world based on nationalistic laws and we live in a globalized community. So this is an industry that's like quintessential for, you know, the thing that you're wearing has crisscrossed around the world seven times. And yet those laws don't cross those same borders. So right. it's very, 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 very difficult to monitor and to track and to some of that stuff. Other part of the, the picture is, um, these companies that you know of as the, the quote-unquote fashion companies or the brands that we call them, um, in many ways what they really actually are is they're specialists in marketing and 
uh, selling clothing. They don't actually make clothing as, as companies. And mm -hmm. they don't own these factories where the work's being done. They don't employ these people who are working in the factories where the work's being done. And that, that lack of responsibility, that lack of there being a real link between the companies who are profiting at the top and the people who are working at the bottom is the is, is kind of like to me at the very crux of the issue yeah. because until you have any long-term commitments being made then what happens is anytime a country begins to unionize or workers gather rights or they you know protest for higher minimum wages the clothing industry historically has then just turned and gone to another country um, right. a lot of what we see in bangladesh is a result from some of the progress made in a country like china it's been called the race to the bottom for a reason. So I think at the end of the day, that's part of what a lot of us are continuing to call for is to say, uh, you know, there, when, when there's a disaster and everybody quickly washes their hands and says, well, it's not our factory. Those aren't our employees. They're not right. on our, uh, then there's a problem. There's yeah. something broken in that system. And that was, I think that was what was so crazy when I heard them talking about the shirtwaist fire, because it was like, when we saw it, we couldn't ignore it. And I think because we can ignore it, we don't care if they're abiding by our regulations. Mm. But thankfully now, um, due to the internet and films like yours, is we're starting, I feel like, to see it. And so for those who think we're just providing jobs for people, what would you say having actually seen those jobs firsthand? Because I feel like that's the ar argument is, mm. well, but we're providing jobs. It's so true. I cannot tell you how many people kind of smugly looked at me across boardroom tables and <laughs> said that. <laughs> I mean, here's my thing. This is what I would say. And there's a lot of people who could speak to this. This is, this is my simple answer to that. I would, I would say this. I don't believe it's a zero-sum ratio. I think for a long time, we have been communicated this false narrative that basically says, look, yes, these jobs are horrible. Yes, they're inhumane. And yes, you have uh, constant reports of people fainting from heat and these buildings falling down and um, all these horrible things. Yes, they're not paid a living wage. That's been documented many, many times over. But, you know, it's better than if they didn't have the job and they just died of starvation. Yeah. And if you really boil it down, like that has literally been the argument for several decades now. Um, and I just don't understand why those are the only two options. I think there's a third option, which is to say you are operating in an industry that's generating massive, massive, massive profits. And there is no reason why these men and women cannot do good, hard, dignified, even let's call it entry-level work in a way that honors their basic humanity and protects their human safety. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just refuse to believe that we cannot create uh, a space inside of this economy where that is not taking place. Um, and I think that that third option, that third column, that third idea, opens up a whole world of imagination and creativity and possibility. Uh, and frankly speaking, I think it's—I think it speaks directly to some of the work of entrepreneurs right. that we've seen all over the world, including people like you who were saying, wait, there's, there's just, th those two options are not good enough, period, yeah. full stop. So we're going to spend time inventing uh, something that's, that's outside of that. And this story, I mean, it's so big from obviously the problem of fast fashion to how we buy our clothes, to how many times we wear them. It, it feels like it all matters, which I think in part is what makes it completely overwhelming for a consumer. Um, but for those who, you know, maybe haven't been paying as close attention or for as long as you and I have, what's changed across the industry since you put out the film? Well, I think what's exciting is that 
we've seen the conversation become more normalized. I mean, I remember uh, when you used to talk about these things, and there have been activists working on this for so much longer than I have, but there, it used to be really, really, really out there. Um, it, it used to be like, you, you just have to like explain to someone like why this was, I mean, even again, as we were pitching the film, I realized just how little thought or care or concern there felt like in the, in the mainstream. And I think that conversation has moved forward dramatically. I think that there have been, um, activists and entrepreneurs, um, all over the world who have been doing in the last several years, just profound work to make this something that's more mainstream, to make this, um, to make the idea of sustainable fashion uh, beautiful and, and mm -hmm. something to be sought after and not like a second best and not a, there's so many pieces of it that, that right. have been really um, profound. And I, you know, I think for me, like in terms of being overwhelming, I think it's just like anything, you, you can get paralyzed by the enormity of the problem or you can sort of, um, you can sort of try your best to learn more and then do something with that information that you've learned. And you know, I think for some people, um, whether it's clothing or food or environmental issues or human rights issues, uh, racial justice, any you know, you name it, I think there there can be, as you alluded to, a, a kind of like paralysis, or even even more broadly speaking, like a sense of sort of compassion fatigue, like. Yeah. I'm worn out. Like I'm worn out on a world where it feels like every day I'm hearing about something new that I need to care about. And I think what I would say about fashion that's been so exciting for me and so different in so many ways is it's not really about taking on a new problem or a new burden. It's it's more about saying, I have these things that I care about on a big global level. And now I have this thing I do every day, which is get dressed. I have this thing that I participate in, which is I, I buy clothing. Yeah. And now I get to line up some of those small choices with some of these bigger things that do feel outside of my control. So if anything, I think it can be really empowering because rather than add something, I think it can be a starting point to say, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to participate in a really small micro way. I'm going to start to just learn a little bit more and I'm going to start to lean into those choices a little bit. You know, I heard, you know, I'll, I'll talk to people. I heard from someone last week and they just said, hey, you know, I've, I've, I just, for the first time, it was, it was uh, someone, a friend of mine I've had for a long time. He's like, you know, for the first time, I have to tell you, first time ever, I was standing in a store and I was looking at a piece of clothing and I, and I, and I wondered for a second, where did this come from? And I was like, that's amazing. Like, yeah. that's huge. Like yeah. the fact that that went through your brain, again, it had never gone through my brain before yeah. I went and saw this stuff. So like, that's a step and, and, and build on that. That brings me to my next question, which is now that you know where your clothes are made from. I'm curious as to how that's changed uh, you personally and then also your family. Because I feel like, like you said, once you see something, you can't unsee it. So what does your clothing look like? Yeah, I mean, it, it does it does change it profoundly. And again, I have to say with all humility, I was like 100,000% clueless. So I always start mm -hmm. there because I think for anybody um, who has guilt or shame or like you're not responsible for what you don't know about right and yeah. once you come into a story and you start to see your place in that story you can you can choose to act based on that and for me it's just i mean on a simple level it's just resulted in buying a lot less mm -hmm. um definitely not engaging in the fast fashion stuff um definitely looking at secondhand stuff definitely looking at brands that are just like really exciting like there's brands that i really i get excited about when i'm gonna purchase a new pair of pants because I'm really, I, I know something about the story. Um, 
And then the same thing for our kids, you know, like we're, they're ecological nightmares, obviously, because they're growing out (laughs) of things constantly. And there is no perfect solution. And I am absolutely not a saint. Like we are absolutely Mm -hmm. not perfectionists, but we are really thinking a lot more about what comes into our house, where is it coming from? And also where is it going afterwards? And, you know, for anyone with kids, I think a huge part of that is, um, you know, who, who, who can we get this that used it before us and who can we give it to that, that uses it after us? Yeah. I feel like two simple things are just, again, pausing. If you don't know what to do, just pause and maybe buy less to start. And then, like you said, if if you have kids, but even with your own clothes, like hand-me-downs and sending them, I like always give my clothes to my younger cousins and they love it. (laughs) Oh, that's Uh, so good. Yeah, it's so good. Well, that's the thing is it's like, it's not a sacrifice. I think a lot of people think about this as like an issue of um, but I, I, you know, like simplifying on every level, like, aren't we all trying to do that? You know, right. like, aren't, aren't we all in, in search of, of lives that are a little bit more careful and mm-hmm. a little bit more rich because we're actually like taking time to invest in stories, not just in cheap stuff that's going to fall apart. And I have right. to say that is the, the kind of like un, untold story of the fast fashion stuff is, you know, it is. It is it is made uh, to 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 be something that you use and use up and and the truth is I would say to anyone if you're if you kind of on that conveyor belt of buying a lot of cheap stuff I would just notice just take stock and notice how often those things really are passing through your wardrobe and they don't have to that's not how that's not how the the history of fashion was designed and you know it's like as you slow down and get off that treadmill a little bit you kind of open up some space in your brain and your closet and your wallet you open up space mm-hmm. to begin to to care about some of these things when if you're doing it at that more forensic rate like I used to where it was like buy the cheapest thing wear it why is that shrinking three times over? Why is that button falling off? Like, I guess I'll go do it again. Um, if you invest a little bit more in things that not only are coming from, you know, more beautiful stories, but also just frankly last longer. Like, mm-hmm. I, 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 it's, I, I want people to love the stuff they wear. I want them to love it. And I want them to realize that fashion as we've loved it over the years has actually been hijacked by big business in this really cheap imitation way. Right. And getting people out of that and back into garments that really fit and really tell a story and really they're going to hold on to. I mean, it's like that to me, that's the secret of sustainability more than anything else. You don't need to be a global expert. You don't need to have gone around the world. You don't have to, Every garment doesn't have to be perfect. There's going to be all kinds of mixed fabrics and, you know, but, but are you buying things that you really love, that you're really going to hold on to, that you're going to really wear, that you're going to take care of? That right there, you just stepped 10 steps forward in yeah. any kind of sustainable uh, story. I feel like you're speaking truth to me. <laughs> so great. Um, so, okay, what's next for you? How can we like support what you're doing? Um, yeah, tell us all the things. Uh, that's a great question. I am working on a couple of films that I'm so excited about. I don't have anything like major to promote right now. We finished, um, I, I just, I made a film called Long Gone By that's kind of set against the backdrop. It's a very personal story between a mother and daughter set against the um, backdrop of immigration uh, issues here in the US. And uh, that's gonna come out later this spring. And then we're working on a new documentary now that I can't talk about yet, but it's the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. And I oh. just can't wait. Okay. Well, you're going to have to like come back or you're going to have to tell, like, <laughs> message me when you can tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm so excited. I mean, the truth is I am trying to find new ways to 
tell stories that um, open our not just our eyes and our minds, but our hearts. You know, I think I think mm -hmm. the truth for me is like these issues really can be big and overwhelming, and I think we really are living in a world that suddenly way, way connected and global in a way that is really hard sometimes, I think, for our hearts to comprehend. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, you know, it goes back to part of the experience of making this film. Like it, it wasn't that we put a bunch of facts and figures together. I think it was that people connected with the, the common basic shared humanity all the way across the world from some of these people. And to me, that kind of has set my life on a on trajectory. And it's, and it's really... I don't know. I feel like I'm just getting started, but I want to be doing I want to be doing that kind of work for the rest of my life. Well, first of all, I just want to like thank you for making the true cost because I really do think it changed my life, and I I tell everyone about it. <laughs> and also, thank you for coming on here. I know this is last minute, and just sharing your story, and I'm I'm really excited for people to hear this. So, thanks. Absolutely, you got it. And I love what you're doing. Keep up the good work. I think oh. it's really special what you guys are putting together. Thanks, thanks. All right, I think that was it. We oh, did it. Yes, we did it. <laughs> we made a podcast. <laughs>